Without any further ado, uh, we'll welcome Kevin Griffin um, with the program Living Kindness. And of course, I've now forgotten the second part. Oh, that's part. fine. That's plenty. And he's going to introduce himself that. and um, enjoy the program, everyone. Thank you for Thanks, being Paige. here. Thanks, Paige. Thank you for tolerating my harassing. Uh, she and I have been having ongoing debates about things like whether this should be called the North Hall. I think it should be called the North Hall. Although I did look on Google Maps yesterday on Google Earth, actually, to try to get why this place was called the West Hall. And I realized that it did kind of have this orientation towards the Northwest. But uh, I know that's why you came, to get a geography lesson. So uh, if you haven't seen Lion, though, really, oh, God, that's the best Google Earth movie ever made. So you'll close the doors there, Daniel? Yeah, thanks. So I am Kevin Griffin. Welcome to Spirit Rock. How many people are at Spirit Rock for the first time? Oh, wow, that's great. Uh, welcome, yeah, it's a special place. Um, I've been in, uh, coming here for uh, since I moved to Northern California in 1991. So um, this building is new. Uh, it was just opened last June. Uh, before that, we had temporary buildings that were here for like 25 years. We used to have daylongs in. Uh, so this is really great to have this space. Um, if you're not familiar with my work, uh, a lot of my focus is on recovery. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, and uh, and um, I'm best known for my book, One Breath at a Time. Um, this day long is not explicitly about recovery. So uh, if you did, you know, if you are not in recovery, you are welcome. And of course, you can come to any of my events because to me, what I cover, what I talk about in terms of connecting Buddhism and recovery is really about clinging and suffering and, uh, and how that happens um, and how we make that unhappen, hopefully. Um, so really the core Buddhist teaching is really about clinging. So... Uh, it's it's not something you know talking about it as addiction is not a not a stretch for sure. But this day, uh, called Living Kindness Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World, uh, is something I've been working on now for about a year. Uh, I'm work I'm writing a book with that title. Uh, we'll see what happens with it. Um, And just first of all, the subtitle, you know, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World, you know, when I came up with that, I kind of had this general idea that Buddhist teachings are, that, that we live, that the world is always troubled, basically. Uh, I wasn't particularly thinking about the world as it is today. I, I realized it was applicable. But uh, it seems to have become more applicable uh, over <laughs> the past year, uh, increasingly applicable. Um, but but really, e- even in the time of the Buddha, there were uh, unwise rulers and wars, uh, slavery, uh, sexism, uh, the caste system, which is certainly a kind of racism. So... Um, so we're not, it's, uh, this, these ideas aren't unique to our time. Uh, and, the, and just the title, Living Kindness, of course, is a play on the, 
uh, word loving kindness or the phrase loving kindness, uh, which is a very popular Buddhist meditation practice and teaching. And it's something that uh, I've been thinking about uh, or kind of questioning some of the typical ways it's presented or portrayed for some time. And, and so the title, uh, the, changing it to living kindness is kind of the beginning of pointing it towards something that's not so much about having some meditation experience or just feeling happy and loving everybody and having a big open heart, which is a nice thing to have, but I don't think it's uh, ultimately where uh, these teachings uh, become most valuable or most meaningful. Um, It's kind of a starting point. So we will, just to give you an idea of what this day is going to be about uh, or what we're going to do today, I am going to spend a little more time talking before we meditate uh, to kind of uh, cover some of the kind of orientation of what we're doing today and what uh, what the ideas are that I want to address. So then we'll do, we'll do a few sessions of meditation today, uh, nothing extensive, 30 minutes will probably be our max length, and maybe do probably two 30-minute sessions and a couple of shorter ones, uh, somewhat guided so, uh, and with certain uh, uh, focuses. Um, and we're, I've also brought some handouts which are uh, from the some of the Buddhist suttas, which are the the oldest teachings that we have from the Buddha. Uh, sutta is the word in Pali, which is the language of these suttas, uh, of these teachings. Um, Pali is very similar to Sanskrit, uh, which you're probably more familiar with. And um, so they come out of something that's called the Pali Canon. And I'm lo- I want to look at those because I'm trying to get somewhat at what was the Buddha really talking about. Because when we start to look at these early teachings, we see that the, there are uh, different angles kind of to approach loving kindness. Uh, and, um, and, so you, and you also get to see a little bit of what these teachings look like. Um, when I first read some of these suttas, I was surprised by how opaque they were. I mean, I couldn't really understand them at all. Um, The language itself, the translations, which a lot of them kind of were originated in the 19th century by English colonists who didn't really understand Dharma. And then, but more, more problematic is that the Buddha was kind of talking about concepts that to some extent don't translate into English very well. And then, there, because it was originally an oral tradition, there's a lot of repetition so that people could kind of... Uh, he would say, you know, there are these four things. And then he would have uh, a, a set phrase that would 
end with one thing and then it would be the same set phrase would end with the second thing and the same set phrase end with the third and the fourth thing so that the monks who had, me had to memorize these would kind of have a way to keep, keep it all organized in their minds. But uh, as a reading, as a text, it's just tedious, you know, and kind of like confusing. And sometimes you'll read it and not even notice the variations. So you're, why, why is he saying the same thing over and over? And then you have to look a little closer. Oh, there's one word that's different in this paragraph from the last paragraph. Um, and so when I first read these, I just thought, like, this isn't what I was looking for. I thought it was going to be something like Rumi, you know, some lot of poetic, lovely imagery. And, and so I, to some extent, I kind of put it aside until I had opportunities to study with people who understood them better. And then, you know, as, as a teacher, I kind of started to feel a responsibility to, well, I'm supposed to be a Buddhist teacher. I ought to be able to you know, study Buddhism <laughs> rather than Jack Kornfield or something, you know, version of Buddhism. Uh, which, you know, Jack is a, one of the great uh, translators in the general sense, not in the literal sense, but the metaphoric sense of, of Dharma. So no, nothing wrong with his teaching. Um, but but one gets to a point where one wants to go, well, what what did the Buddha really say? Because you start to hear these different voices. And, you know, if you, on the Internet, people throw up, the Buddha said this, and you're like, what? You know, and, or, or, and you, what's the reference for that? Um, so after a while, I started to see the richness of the suttas, you know, and I got more and more kind of like, well, this is really juicy stuff. So, in fact, next month I'm doing a three-day non-residential retreat here, which is called Sutta Recovery, where we're going to go into a lot of the suttas and uh, about clinging and about letting go. Um, so I don't know if that's going to get too academic. We'll see if anyone comes. If not, I'll just study them myself. Uh, so just to look at the word which is translated as loving-kindness. Daniel, do we have any more chairs back there for folks? Are there, you've got enough seats? Okay, good. There's a, there's a seat up front here, too. Um, so the Pali word that we translate as loving-kindness is metta, M-E-T-T-A. Um, so just the fact that we have to combine two words to try to say this one word shows that we've got a bit of a problem. Uh, the problem starts, I think, with the fact that in English the word love has a wide array of meanings. You know, we think of it, first of all, as you know, caring about people, having a feeling about someone. But, of course, it can also refer to sex, making love, you know, we, which I think back in the Fred Astaire days just meant dancing with somebody, I'm not sure. But uh, it's, it's come to mean something, you know, pretty explicit, you know. And, um, or, you know, I love this watch, you know, like that doesn't sound very spiritual, you know. <laughs> um, so we, we in the West have had to tag on kindness. So it's like, oh, oh, that kind of love, the kind of love that's kind. Okay, so so we don't have a word for metta, um, which I think is the first problem. 
you know, in terms of kind of understanding what the Buddha is talking about, that we don't even have a word for it. And that's true of, of a lot of the really key words uh, that we uh, use in, in English to talk about uh, the Buddhist teachings. Words like dukkha, which we translate as suffering, not a great translation. Sati, we translate as mindfulness. Um, but anyway, I won't go into the whole, you know, Pali English dictionary to start the day. Um, so, one of the other questions that comes to mind for me is why do we why do we teach loving kindness at all why is that a thing um, when when we see that kind of the core buddhist meditation practice is mind what we call nowadays mindfulness uh, it's kind of uh, become more secularized i think over time um, what's the relationship between that and loving kindness. It seems like loving kindness is almost like an add-on to that. Like, oh, we're sitting here just following our breath. Uh, let's give them something that'll, you know, perk them up. Love everybody. You know, <laughs> love your pets. You know, love your enemies. Um, so I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The uh, the first one uh, is that. Well, I'm not sure this is the first one, but this is one that comes to mind. Um, that uh, when we, we can go back to this story, there's a story about why the Buddha first taught loving kindness. And the story is that some of his monks went into the forest to meditate, and they started getting harassed by tree fairies. Now, I don't know if you know any tree fairies, but apparently... At that time, there were tree fairies. And the, the tree fairies didn't like these, these guys in orange robes coming into their forest and meditating. It was like, this is our space, you're invading it. We're, so they spooked them. And uh, so the monks kind of went back to the Buddha and said, like, we can't meditate out there because like, the tree fairies don't like us being there. They're, they're really like scary. So the Buddha taught them loving kindness. And he, and he said, go back and do this and, and send loving kindness to the tree fairies and then you'll be okay. So that it worked. They went back and they sent loving kindness to the tree fairies and the tree fairies said, well, this is really nice. We like these guys now. And uh, in fact, we're going to take care of them. And they, they manifested in bodies and started to, to uh, protect the forest and feed the monks and... So, if you don't believe in tree fairies, there's another way to understand this story, that when we start to meditate, we, our shadow arises. The things that have been covered that we haven't seen, our own, not fairies, you know, <laughs> more like demons, you know, those, those scary parts of our own mind uh, start to arise. Our own, the feelings that come up, you know, sometimes people, you know, experiences of trauma, memories, just uh, our, our own just self-image or our own emotions that, were, that are buried. Um, 
that get revealed as we practice this very open practice of mindfulness, just sitting with the breath. And so uh, bringing loving kindness can be a way of holding those energies as they arise, those thoughts, those feelings. Uh, and so, so I, I see that's one connection we can make with loving kindness, uh, with metta, what it's, what it's um, or metta with mindfulness, what its role is in practice. Some teachers, though, say that if you practice mindfulness wholeheartedly, uh, as you as you do open up, that there's an there's, you know, if the, let's say the demons don't come up so much, that the other thing that happens is that we start to feel connected to the things around us. Again, because there's kind of a letting go of the shell of the kind of our our walls. Uh, we're just sitting with the breath, sitting with the body, sitting with feelings as they arise, and that there's a softening and an opening that happens organically and that that loving kindness just arises out of that. So there are some teachers, at least I have heard teachers say, Ajahnamaro in particular, uh, a, a Buddhist monk, um, that he doesn't really teach mindfulness, as, or I'm sorry, loving kindness as a separate practice, but that he sees it as a natural outgrowth of mindfulness practice. And I think that's also... Uh, a good way of looking at it. Uh, so fundamentally, I guess what I'd like to get at is to not think of these as separate practices, mindfulness and loving kindness, but to think of them as conjoined practices because there's a, and and there are further reasons for that. They, uh, as we practice loving kindness, it's very important to be mindful uh, of uh, because different things can happen as we're doing it, and we need to be able to kind of hold them in that space. So I think that's kind of, uh, uh, those are the main things I wanted to talk about to kind of get us started and kind of situate what we're doing today. Um, and uh, so uh, I'd like to sit, but before I do, just just to ask if there are any questions of any kind, whether they're uh, practical or whether they're questions about what I was just teaching. Uh, and and I will say, and people who have sat with me before know that I really like to work with people's questions because that really often opens up uh, uh, a lot of topics that I like to get into. So do not you know, hold back. And we ha- we do have a microphone we're going to ask people to speak into because this is being recorded and if you've ever listened to a recording where someone asks a question and you don't hear the question and all you hear is the answer, you know that that's annoying. And we don't want to annoy people. Okay. Well, we'll get you talking as the day goes on. All right, so I'm going to work with some uh, guided meditations today. Uh, maybe a little more than usual. Yeah, so there, there are nice cushions and 
Zabitons, if you want to sit on the floor for your meditation. Um, Just set yourself up wherever you can find a space, and it's fine if you want to move between the floor and a chair, uh, as long as there are enough chairs and floors. You can try to get comfortable, you know. <laughs> no, I mean it doesn't hurt. It's just start. It's good to start comfortable, you know. So I'll just talk a little bit about uh, this practice. Um, I'm calling this precious human birth, uh, which is a phrase from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. One of the things that they, one of the first things you'll always hear from a Tibetan teacher when they introduce teachings is how, uh, how unique and special it is to be a human being. And, uh, you know, they put this in the context of reincarnation and uh, the lifetimes and the the different the opportunity to practice, but uh, we can certainly see that human beings are uh, outnumbered by other beings on the planet, and uh, so at least in that sense, it's a rare thing to be human. Um, but the you know, the starting point of loving kindness practice is to start with the self and and. Um, that can be tricky. So uh, rather than just starting by trying to send loving kindness to ourselves, uh, this is more about um, appreciating that you are here, that you are alive. So you can begin by closing your eyes, or if you're not comfortable with your eyes closed in a group, just just lower your gaze so that you're Kind of moving out of the visual world, turning inward. You want to be sitting in a way that your body is balanced and aligned, so you can kind of check check in as you go inside to just feel how your body is situated. The key efforts in meditation practice is to balance alertness and relaxation. So we start by having a posture that allows us to be alert and relaxed. You can find that sweet spot. And then beginning to relax the body and just connecting with the sensations in the body. It can be helpful to start by relaxing the jaw, muscles in the face. The eyes. 
the forehead, they're just softening. And then relaxing the shoulders, if there's any tension there. We're just kind of letting ourselves be drawn to the earth by gravity. Sometimes as we release and relax, there's a sense of the body becoming heavier or more dense. Softening the belly. Just feeling the breath in the chest and the belly. Having a sense of openness. Non-resistance. Relaxing through the hips and pelvis. The legs and feet. Now feeling the body as a single object sitting in stillness. As you feel the singleness of the body, you can also feel the variety of sensations. Some parts of the body you can feel very distinctly, others more dull or almost numb. This just helps to ground us, helps to come into the present moment, step out of the mental world. Nothing special about feeling sensations. And yet, something very special this capacity to feel. As we settle, we might 
Notice sounds as well. Allowing them to come and go. As the attention settles in the body, you might also notice some mood, emotion that manifests in the body. Emotions can appear in all kinds of parts of the body. We talk about butterflies in the stomach, or a full heart. Sadness can appear as tears in the eyes, tension, anxiety can be in the shoulders or the jaw. But even when there's nothing distinct like those feelings, You might notice a kind of general felt experience of mood in the body. So we breathe with this non-resistance. So now starting to connect with the breath, but feeling the breath in a very broad way in the body, the whole of the breath, how the chest and belly rise and fall, how the air touches the nostrils coming in and out. You might feel the internal experience of the breath moving through the sinuses down the throat. The breath can be felt in many parts of the body. The ribs expand and contract. The back opens up with each breath. Sometimes the shoulders move with the breath. Nostrils slightly flaring. Just having this very broad feeling of breath. And as we pay attention to this simple process that we usually take for granted, remembering that this 
action is what keeps you alive moment by moment. Your body opens up to receive air. The lungs take it in, transfer the oxygen into the blood. And they expel the parts of the blood that the body can't use, comes out as carbon dioxide. This complex process that we really don't participate in keeps happening. Most of the time without our awareness and certainly the real mechanism of it is beyond our capacity to control. When we say my body, my lungs, my breath, These do not belong to us. Over and over, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, your body is taking care of you, keeping you alive. With no conscious effort on your part, this process goes on. A gift, we could say. Precious gift of life. As we become intimate with this process of breathing, we begin to feel how fragile it really is. The body bones and flesh, organs and veins, take a moment of gratitude for your breath and your body.
knowing that you are really the beneficiary of millions of years of evolution. Miraculous manifestation that is not only alive but knows that it is alive. Mindfulness asks us to reflect on this question, who am I? What is this life? We tend to think of our life as a story. the past events and dramas, future plans, goals. Mindfulness gives us another view that our life is just this, our senses, our feelings, our thoughts, all just happening in this moment, an ongoing flow, no form 
no structure, no direction, just being, just life, here and now. And you just enjoy this life in this moment. And you appreciate the preciousness of this amazing manifestation. Can that be enough? without the stories, without the past and the future. loving-kindness practice asks us to start by sending love to ourselves. Not saying we should love our story, our past, or our future, but that we should love this appreciate this, be grateful for this, this miracle of life. Maybe there are other beings in the universe who have the awareness that humans have, but we don't know of any.
the consciousness that arises out of this body and this brain, or that somehow is with it, is unique. We begin the practice of loving-kindness by giving love to ourselves. The traditional form suggests speaking to ourselves silently, saying, May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. See how it feels to say things like that to yourself. speaking to this fragile manifestation of life. Any phrases of kindness will do. These are simple ones you can use if you like. May I be happy. 
May I be peaceful. May I be safe. and sit with whatever comes up. Staying in the body, staying with the breath and the heart.
So um, we'll take a break in a few minutes, uh, just if you have any needs for a break. Um, but uh, I'd like to just... Um, I'm just going to talk about one more little thing and then see if there are any questions. So, so the, just to say that um, from what I can see, and, I, and I, there's a lot more I could study in this suttas, I don't find places where the Buddha says we should send loving kindness to ourselves. This is something that, as far as I can tell, uh, is first offered as a practice later on in what's called the the commentaries. There's a later on texts, Buddhist texts, uh, that uh, are meant to kind of expand on and explain some of the suttas. Um, but from what I can tell, the Buddha assumes that one loves oneself. Uh, and so this is something that's been talked about uh, in a contrast between Western uh, kind of uh, thinking, think Western sort of uh, views of self and Asian views that the, the famous story of the Dalai Lama, someone asking him about how to deal with self-hatred and, and that he couldn't understand what they were talking about. He, his trans, he and his translator had to go back and forth for a while until he finally sort of got an idea of what the person was saying. And essentially what he said then was just, don't do that. <laughs> you know. Simple enough. But uh, people, often, people often refer to a particular text uh, to in, it suggest that the Buddha did say that uh, we should love ourselves. How do people put it? Uh, well, anyway, so I'm just going to show you this text, read a little bit of this very short little piece. And this is... Uh, an exchange between uh, King Pasanadi and his wife, Queen Malika, who appear in one of the other suttas we're going to look at today. Um, and these are historical figures as far as we know, and, and Queen Malika particularly was a devoted follower of the Buddha. Uh, so King Pasanadi of Kosala said to Queen Malika, Is there anyone, Malika, dearer to you than yourself? You know, when I read that, I think, uh-oh, like, isn't she supposed to say, you, of course, are more dear to me than myself, right? She says, there is no one great king dearer to me than myself. But is there anyone great king dearer to you than yourself? And he responds, neither is there anyone, Malika, dearer to me than myself. Then King Pasanadi of Kosala descended from the palace and went to visit the Buddha, who's called the Lord here. On approaching the Lord, he prostrated himself, sat down to one side, and reported this conversation that he'd had with the queen. Then, on realizing its significance, the Buddha uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. On traversing all directions with the mind, one finds no one anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, everyone holds himself most dear. Hence, one who loves himself should not harm another. So I apologize for the sexist language. We can easily put this as a female as well, feminine. 
on traversing all directions with the mind. This is a, like one of those phrases, like, okay, tra- traversing all directions. So this is just this image that you, if you think about the whole world, uh, that there's no one that you love more than yourself. Well, you know, the, the, this, the basic uh, principle of this is a little bit alien to us. Uh, but as I say, this is what the Buddha assumes, I think. But what I think is also really important about this text is that that's not the point that he's making. The point that he's making is, hence, one who loves himself should not harm another. You know, it's the golden rule, basically. Right? Do unto others as you would unto yourself. So even when he's talking about loving oneself, it's in the context of, well, you remember, everyone loves themselves just like you love yourself. It kind of explains how people who hate themselves behave in the world. Because if you hate yourself, you you know, treat others the way you treat yourself, right? It kind of explains the world in a way, you know. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of the, you know, it, it also kind of establishes one of the foundation principles for why we need to cultivate loving kindness so that we can live in the world in harmony with the world. So, um, just want to open it up if there are questions either about that practice we did or anything that I've said or anything that's coming up. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, can you give him the mic? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, okay. forgot about the mic. Yeah. Uh, the question was, in uh, asking myself about these positive attributes, can I have safety and happiness and uh, peace? Uh, it immediately brought up that duality of what is peace without war, what is safety yeah. without vulnerability, happiness without sadness, etc. So yeah. uh, that was that was a challenge for me. Where where uh, where do you go with that yeah. sort of? Uh, so, yeah, so this is uh, addressed, the kind of classic teaching the Buddha gives on this is called the eight worldly winds. Where, is the, where there is fame, there must be ill repute. Where there is you know, um, happiness, there must be sadness. Where there is uh, you know, good fortune, there has to also be ill fortune those aren't quite the ones but they're all it's it's pointing to this idea that and it and it's founded in the fact that everything is impermanent and that's and that's what that teaching it, that's the starting point of the teaching on the worldly winds that you know if you're if you have a high point there's also going to be a low point and and uh, there's always these uh these aspects of the world that we live with and so, uh, to put it in the context of the of loving kindness, the loving kindness is taught as part of uh, something called Brahma Viharas, which are there are four elements to the Brahma Viharas. 
the start, starting is loving kindness, and the second is compassion, which is what the Buddha is talking about in this, this teaching. And then there's something called sympathetic joy, which is the opposite of compassion. If compassion is caring about someone's suffering, sympathetic joy is taking joy in their happiness. So that's the first three. The fourth one is the balancing one. It's called equanimity. And it's the one that allows us to be with all these contrasting experiences with, without becoming overwhelmed. You know, that keeps that gives, keeps us grounded. And uh, Gil Fransdale says that equanimity protects the other Brahma-viharas so that loving-kindness doesn't turn into something mushy or overly emotional, so that compassion doesn't turn into pity or get overwhelmed with, you know, compassion fatigue, so that sympathetic joy doesn't turn into kind of a grasping after, uh, you know, elation. Uh, so, so, Equanimity is really the kind of foundation quality that, that mindfulness is building in us. It's we sit here, we immovable, right? Whatever arises, we watch it, we breathe, we let it go. You know, we don't go running out the door when some intense thought or feeling arises, when some sensation arises. We sit with it and we learn, we develop this capacity to hold hold the Contrasting experiences. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Yeah. I just have a comment. Um, I'm taking a Brahma Vihara class right now. I'm in oh, a you are? Yeah, and I'm in, we're doing that. Who are you taking that with? Um, uh, Diane Wild. Oh, yeah. Sacramento, okay. yeah. yeah so ahead. we started with uh, Metta, obviously, and, and Self Metta. And the instruction was to do uh, start with 10 minutes of uh, Self Metta a day. So I kind of did the Bantiji prayer, you know, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And then I threw in, may I be loving, and may I be kind to myself. And so uh, the instruction was 10 minutes a day. And uh, so the good addict that I am, I did 30 minutes a day. And, uh, man, it just really changed my brain. Uh-huh. It almost changed your brain chemistry, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just, it's just amazing. Yeah. That's my only comment on it. Beautiful. Thank you. They're right beside you, oh. this. Hi, <laughs> Kevin. Hey, Carson. Um, so I really liked the, or appreciated the, uh, guided instruction around sort of gratitude for consciousness, I guess, and the breath. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed like a very accessible way to practice meta toward myself. Uh, and, but then when we shifted to the traditional way, mm-hmm. which I have quite a bit of experience with in these circles, mm-hmm. I still detect like this, this aversion to, mm-hmm. May I be happy? May I be safe? Um, like, and I'm not even sure. Um, it's either it's either it triggers commentary because I'm saying I and that mm-hmm. whole thing, yeah. or or there's just this this thing that you get like when you do the joy class or something like. There's just some resistance to just wishing myself well. So I was wondering if there um, if you have anything to say about that that might be helpful. Um, if I should just kind of continue to just practice with it or, or are there specific techniques that are helpful when this comes up in the practice? Well, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, if it's working as a nonverbal practice, work on the nonverbal level, I, th- I think 
it 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 is somewhat the 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 verbal the phrases can be at times somewhat uh clunky or just kind of you know artificial and particularly as you say if they're triggering because they're saying rather than just like connecting with something it's a thought and just as you say when there's a thought what happens is the mind immediately jumps in and you know engages that thought either in a positive or a negative way or tries to go somewhere with that thought and that so that's one of the risks of this uh verbal kind of work with it um but it's also part of the practice uh, to observe and that's why I was saying mindfulness needs to be there when you're practicing loving kindness is to observe resistance re- observe points of resistance and observe points of non-resistance and where what works what doesn't work what's a struggle what isn't a struggle and just as with mindfulness just because it's difficult or there's resistance doesn't mean we don't continue to do it right that there's actually some value in continuing and maybe you'll have a breakthrough like this gentleman here uh where uh you know you don't know uh i i've worked uh quite a bit with a visual uh, visualization that ayakema does where she in, visualizes a golden stream of light coming out of your heart radiating out to beings and filling yourself with that light so th- things like that sometimes can uh you know work where the verbal doesn't work so while working with uh, a visual practice we can do that practice later too um, what you what you're saying kind of reminds me of something i wanted to just talk about a little bit which is one of the things that I'm, i've tried to do is kind of uh describe what i see as the different aspects of loving kindness that one of the aspect the, the first one and the one that we mostly associate with is this feeling of being loving you know so my heart is opening i feel connected to beings you know. but that that's not the whole practice that insight is also a part of this practice uh, insight into resistance insight into interconnectedness uh you know non-separation so when i realize oh you know i'm just this body and and everyone has a body or like when the buddha says uh everyone has holds themselves dear that that's a natural uh connection we make um so that's insight practice that comes out of it that is also what i would call the attitude of loving kindness which is something we carry with us you know you may, might not always feel loving but because you have in, have had insight into interconnection or that everyone's wish to be happy when you're out and about in the world you kind of try to deal with people in a different way with a different attitude intentionally so that comes out of right view and right intention seeing how suffering arises seeing how uh you know everyone struggles with the same challenges in life fundamentally the four noble truths um and so we we change our attitude you know and this is a big part of loving kindness when people learn about loving kindness and start to connect with it it's like oh i really want to be like this i want to act in this way i want to take this attitude into my life and treat people differently so that then connects from the attitude it moves to the behavior aspect of 
of loving-kindness, which we can associate with the third refuge. I get, I'm throwing out lists today. So uh, the, the three refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Sangha is the community, but Ajahnamaro has a beautiful way of characterizing his, the Sangha. He says that the Buddha is the one who knows, and the one who knows sees the truth of the way things are, which is the Dharma. So as we become... As we cultivate this quality of awareness, we start to see the Dharma, we start to see the truth in the world. And then the Sangha is the way that we live when we see the truth. It's the living expression of the Dharma. And so rather than thinking of it as people, just a group of people, it's this manifestation which which is an expression of loving kindness, an expression of, of uh, morality, and then the final aspect, actually not the final, but I'll, the final one I'm going to talk about, is the concentration that arises from metta. So actually, metta practice, as taught particularly by the Burmese, they re- don't seem to really be interested that much in like feeling lovey-lovey. You know, they're like, do this practice and you'll get into deep concentration, and then you can get enlightened. So go for it, you know. Um, and... Indeed, we see how this can be a very powerful practice, partly because it's um, very structured and it really holds the attention. And that pleasant experience holds the attention when you're feeling connected. And if you're doing this sort of whole thing where you're feeling your breath, feeling your body, feeling the loving kindness arising, you're repeating these phrases and you're visualizing the people or kind of imagining them it's very encompassing for the mind, so it can really hold your attention more more easily than just breathing in and out, which can, you know, you can kind of lose your attention there pretty easily. So metta practice is a great concentration in that way, and then out of it arises two of the foundation qualities of jhana, which is the meditative absorptions, which are rapture and and uh, happy joy. So as as joy and rapture arise, concentration actually uh, deepens. So we see that this practice has many aspects. It's not just, oh, sit here and learn to love everybody. Okay, you're done. It's actually many layers. And that's, I think that's really important to to understand that this, and again, I I mean, you know, I, 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 I a good amount of my teaching is kind of an effort to kind of, uh, kind of position myself as like contrasting with something that I, uh, some s- uh, straw man argument that 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 out there there are these lame superficial loving kindness teachers or teachings and I'm going to show you the real thing so uh, I, I'm, it's a bit of an exaggeration but. Uh, you know, you can. It's more like the way it shows up in the catalogs of like yoga centers and stuff. Like, come and open your heart, feel love and connection to all beings. Like, you know what happens when you open your heart? It's a scary thing. There's a reason why I'm closed. You know, so uh, don't just throw me in there. You know, this is a complicated thing. So um, let's take a little break. There's two restrooms at the other. Uh, what I will call the southeastern end of the building. And uh, then there's some downstairs. 
There's water fountains downstairs. And uh, actually, I'm going to suggest that we stay silent outside the hall so that we don't disturb the group downstairs because this one minor flaw in this building is that sound really kind of carries a lot. So if we can uh, maintain silence outside the hall, then we can talk all we want in here. So we'll take about uh, 10 minutes and then come back. Thank you. So the Buddha goes to visit these three monks who are essentially on retreat. Here's some more copies back here. Thanks, Paige, um, if anyone didn't get one. Um, and these three monks are living in uh, what they call a park, but it's more like a forest as far as I can tell. It's interesting, he, he gets there in the evening and the park keeper sees him coming. So I, I, I don't know really what this whole like kind of situation is as a park keeper, but anyway, he sees him coming. He says, do not enter this park, recluse. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good. Do not disturb them. It's very nice. This guy is, these guys are basically on a retreat in the woods, uh, and there's somebody out there who's, who's kind of keeping people from disturbing them. And uh, but the the leader of the three monks he hears him, and his name is Anuruddha is the this monk, the senior monk there, and he says it's okay, friend, park keeper, do not keep the blessed one out. It is our teacher, the blessed one, who has come. Um, so he, and the Buddha comes in, and the first thing he asks them, he's kind of checking up on them. In fact, he is checking up on them. First thing he asks, though, is, "Are you getting alms food? Are you get, because the monks l depend on the food that's given to them by the villagers? So presumably, this park is near a, a village where they can go in the morning and do their alms round. So, what I like about this is that the Buddha doesn't jump in and say, you know, are you guys enlightened yet? You know, how's your meditation? First thing he says is, are you doing okay? You're getting fed." You know, it's like a very basic thing, you know. And, and uh, again, something maybe we don't associate with a spiritual teaching, like worrying about if, if your students are getting fed. But, you know, it's kind of important. As, as my friend uh, Heather Sundberg says, when we're teaching retreat, she says, you know, the teachers could leave the retreat and the retreat could continue on. If the cooks leave, the retreat's over, you know. <laughs> So just to let you, the way I've actually found this sutta, because there's hundreds of them in this book, and that when I was first studying it, I didn't know where to begin. I, w I wanted to give a talk on loving kindness, and I looked in the index for loving kindness, and there, the, the citing for this sutta said, loving kindness in action. I thought, okay, that'll be interesting, because I want to see like the practical aspects of it, right? So living kindness. So, okay, and so the Buddha has this great phrase, which I've used as a chapter title. He says, are you living in concord, blending like milk and water? Uh, this is a phrase we see throughout the suttas. Where it's, it's not a particularly poetic image, and it doesn't, doesn't make me thirsty. 
because like watered down milk. But the idea is that if you mix milk and water together, there's you know they blend together. Um, there's no conflict there. He says, uh, "Are you blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes?" Very sweet. And and so the Buddha begins this kind of uh, uh, dial or or um, like questioning. He, he, start, he keeps drilling down, kind of asking deep, more and more questions. So he says to Anuruddha, "Okay, so you say you're blending like milk and water." He says. But Anuruddha, how do you live thus? So, so this is the page that you have then at the, t- at the top on the left. It says, he says, Venerable Sir, as to this, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So his first thought is, I'm really lucky to have these people doing this with me. You know, so the first th- re- way that he expresses why they're getting along is that he's grateful, right? So it's an expression of gratitude for this community that he has. Then he says, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward these venerable ones openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness toward them openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness toward them both openly and privately. So these are the three forms of karma. Karma is created mentally, verbally, physically. So this is what he's expressing, is that I'm creating positive karma through my thoughts, words, and deeds. Um, And then uh, this other aspect of it, openly and privately. We know about the difference between doing something anonymously doing a favor for someone without telling them. You know, wow, I'm not going to get any credit. My, my, the joy that I get out of it has to be completely just out of my own appreciation for doing it, uh, the right thing. And then he says, and this I think is another one of the key phrases, I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. Well, venerable ones is just a term for other monks. But why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Well, I can give you lots of reasons why you should not set aside what you wish to do. Because it's not what you want to do. Why do you want to do what the other people want to do? Um, But obviously this is loving kindness in action. Right? setting aside what I want to do. When I first encountered this sutta, my daughter was uh, an infant, or at least a toddler. She was little. And a lot of my life was setting aside what I wanted to do and doing what my daughter needed or what my wife wanted me to do. Um, and so this resonated for me, uh, particularly at that time, um, and because, of course, that act of parenting is such a, a rich one and, and one that, uh, you know, you don't have to be, usually you don't have to be prodded to, to set aside what you wish to do because the, the natural expression of love, which we'll see later on, is actually how the Buddha uh, defines loving kindness. So we've kind of got the, 
this laid out here, but the Buddha's not really satisfied. He wants more details. Uh, 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 just the, the other two junior monks chime in and, and say the same thing, but then the Buddha says, you know, I hope you all abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. Diligent, ardent, and resolute. So one of the things that we see a lot in these suttas is redundancy. I'm not sure why, but I attribute it to just the idea that they want to kind of drive home these points. But diligent, ardent, and resolute uh, seems to be three of the same things. Um, but this particular phrase also shows up in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, which is considered the most important sutta in the in the uh, Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So um, it makes me think that uh, the Buddha is kind of almost referencing uh, mindfulness here, but I'm not sure about that. So, but the Buddha wants more details. So here's where we get really down to the nitty gritty. You know, how do you uh, how do you abide this diligent, ardent, and resolute? How do you express this loving kindness? I mean, you said like verbal, you know, mental physical, but come on, give me, tell me what really happens. So he says, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over, if he wishes. Otherwise, he throws it away the way there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing, puts away the refuse bucket after washing it, and he sweeps out the refectory. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do you take care of your house? You know, well, I want to know. You know, and this is in those Buddhist teachings. Like, you know, whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrine are low or empty, takes care of them. If they are too heavy for him, he calls someone else by a signal of the hand, and they move it by joining hands. But because we do not break out into speech, they're practicing their own silent retreat. Uh, because of this, we do not break out into speech. But every five days we sit together all night discussing the Dhamma. This is how we abide, diligent, ardent, and resolute. So the Buddha's like, good, good. So, so uh, just to go over this, th- uh, this I find this paragraph to be very interesting. <laughs> First of all, because it is on this very practical level that the Buddha's getting into questioning what you know and, and showing what is loving kindness in action it's how we live together you know as i'm as i was working on this book and this particular chapter about this sutta i started worrying about people that not worrying about them but am i too much biased towards people who live with other people just curious uh, anecdotally how many people here live alone Okay, so a good number. So I'm going to have to figure out how to address that. <laughs> um, but maybe <laughs> how we take care of our own home is a kind of a, a question, you know, a question of our own loving kindness toward ourselves. But that seems like it could get into tr- problematic areas of self-judgment. So I don't know. Maybe you guys can help me with that question. Uh, but because what you know, what I'm thinking about in this is living with a family or living with a partner or living with roommates and all the kind of struggles we can get into in those situations, which is one of the reasons that we wind up living alone. 
maybe. <laughs> because it can be a big pain, right? You know, some people like a clean house, some people aren't so picky, you know. And there's like the discussions over what's in the refrigerator and should we share the food or do we not, you know, and did you put the toilet seat down and who took out the garbage? And, you know, it's... Um, but, uh, you know, it's... It's lovely the way this is characterized, I think, and, and how detailed it gets. And that it even, there's a, a two details in here that I want to point to. One is just that, uh, and this is again something we might talk about later. One is that the, when they throw away the refuse, that it goes where there is no greenery or water where there is no life. So there is this mindfulness and attention to not harming, not, they don't want to kill any beings, or or even harm the plants you know, there, where there's no greenery, right? So there's this is there is this undercurrent and uh, uh, of uh, ecological awareness of of environmental awareness in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, of course, it's most obviously expressed in the precept to not kill any living beings. It's you know whereas in uh, the Judeo-Christian and maybe Abrahamic traditions, it's not to kill people. Uh, in Buddhism, it's not to kill any living beings, which is actually impossible, but you can't live because there's things crawling around in your mouth right now. Um, <laughs> microbes, right? Uh, Wes Nisker gets into all that much <laughs> much better than, you know. Um, but the other thing I want to point to because it it's it's gives us a clue as to why the Buddha is even talking about this stuff is that that they're even talking about the latrine right so they're you know it's really getting right into the nitty-gritty like who's taking care of the bathroom well it turns out that the Buddha had recently been to visit some other monks a larger group of monks who were living in a place called Kosambi. And this became, this visit became memorialized in the teaching called the Quarrel at Kosambi. So the Buddha went to visit these monks as he heard they were having a, some dispute. And the dispute arose when one of the senior monks, there were like two groups of monks who had like senior teachers. And one of those teachers, who was more of a meditation master, went into the bathroom, or you know, and and in Asia, and certainly at that time and today as well, as far as I understand, one the one doesn't use toilet paper; one uses water for the same purpose of, as toilet paper in the bathroom. So in the in this you know, latrine, there's there's a bucket of water, and the the senior monk used the water for its purpose and then didn't refill the bucket. Now there was a rule, and there were many rules, there was a rule that you didn't leave the bucket half full. That you either emptied it, you know, used it all up, or you, you know, refilled it. This senior monk was more of an expert on meditation, not on the rules. Well, the other group was headed by a monk who was very high on the rules, and he went in right after the, this other monk. And he discovered that the bucket was half empty. And he was like, what's going on here? This guy like broke the rule. So he went to this other monk and said, you know, there's a rule. 
You don't leave the bucket half empty in the latrine. The guy's like, ah, did not know that. Thank you for letting me know. And so the the rule monk said, it's okay. If you didn't know the rule, there's no violation. You know, it's it's not doesn't count as a violation. You know, I don't know where they chalk up these things, but it's some karmic thing. You know, ledger. So they part, apparently friendly, but the rule monk mentions to his gang <laughs> what happened. And they, the way they hear it is, that guy broke the rule. You know, he doesn't know the rules. So they went to the followers of the meditation monk and said, your you know, teacher doesn't know the rules. He broke the rules. You know, and, and so it turns into this thing. Because so they, they go to their teacher and say, you know, these monks say that you broke a rule and that, you know, you violated one of the precepts. And, and he says, well, the, the rule guy said that I didn't break a rule if I didn't know. So he's lying. So they go back and tell his, well, your, mo- your teacher's lying. And so they're going to, heart teacher's lying. So, so they're just back and forth, just squabbling. The Buddha hears about this and shows up. He's like, okay, I've got to go calm these guys down. He shows up and he says, you know, a schism, like arguing, this is not okay. You guys got to let it go. And the, their response is, like, butt out. We got this. You know, don't tell us what to do. And Buddha's like, whoa, really? Okay, guys, shine on. And he takes off. You will, you know, be the inheritors of your karma. Uh, you know, and Today, you know, when I think about this, like if the Buddha shows up and says, like, you're supposed to do something, like, okay, I mean, like, it's hard to imagine that people would just like, but, you know, this was, in those days, probably he wasn't, you know, whatever, <laughs> he wasn't such a big guy, he didn't have all the books out or anything yet, <laughs> so it wasn't on the internet. Mm. So, so that's the background of when he goes to Kosinga and and shows up. That's why he's asking these questions so deeply with these guys. Um, and I love that story anyway because it, it's another one of those stories that kind of goes, oh, okay, like monks like can be do stupid stuff. So I guess I'm okay then. Um, so b- before we talk about this a little bit more. Um, I want to uh, just notice that the next thing that happens after the Buddha, after they describe how they keep the place clean, the Buddha then says, "Well, you abide thus, diligent, ardent, resolute. Have you attained any superhuman state, <laughs> a distinction in knowledge, vision, worthy of the noble ones, a comfortable abiding?" And then Anuruddha then starts to talk about how they experience the jhanas, the concentration states that I mentioned before. So, right here in the suttas, we're seeing a direct connection between the, that the, the practice of loving-kindness in action and then the development of your meditation practice. Uh, you know, the classical teaching says that sila, or morality, behavior, is the foundation for the development of 
meditation and then and, and concentration, calm abiding, and that that then the development of the mind, the training of the mind in meditation, then is the foundation for the development of insight. So this is a process, but it starts with this, the way we live. Um, but you know, my interest in this sutta is more on the blending like milk and water. Um, because I think it's a, it's a good place to start. You know, again, there's sort of this sense sometimes that meditation is this lofty practice that's separate from our lives, that, that's going to help us transcend uh, the challenges of life, or, and, and that uh, you know, once we get enlightened, then all our problems will be solved or something. I mean, these are the kind of illusions that I had when I started to practice. And there, we have this term, spiritual bypass, to kind of characterize that. The idea that, oh, I'll go to Spirit Rock, I'll go on a long retreat, I'll meditate so much that like, all my problems will be solved. Rather than, you know, when I get home, all the bills are going to be waiting for me from that like month that I was away, you know, and like it, whatever life goes on, and and uh, that meditation isn't something separate from life, but that what we're doing here is is part of life. Um. So. I guess I'd like to work with a, a little exercise, but just maybe before we do this, any thoughts or questions anybody has? Yeah. Um. Better way to live alone. Is there a sutta on the better oh. way to live alone? I don't know. Oh. So if that you can might, find it, that that would might help be me. helpful for people who don't have That's roommates. What, right. Yeah. That would help me solve my my problem. Because <laughs> I don't want to alienate my readers. If it exists. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's a good hint, a clue. I'll, we will start to look. I'm actually going to meet with uh, Ajahn Pasano in a couple of months and talk about the book, so... That'll be a good question. I can ask him if there's a sutta. Because clearly, as much... I mean, it's an interesting question, just... Uh, you know, in the West, we think of meditation as this kind of solitary exercise. And yet, here we all are together, you know. And there they all are up the hill meditating together. The Buddha set up the monastic sangha as something that was dependent upon the lay community. So the, you know, they can't keep food overnight. They had to be, so they were always really dependent upon the lay community. Um, so they were not seen as hermits, you know, uh, which I think in the West, again, we have this sort of idea that a monk is somebody who's a hermit, kind of, in the, and in some of the Catholic monastic traditions, the Trappists, and the, they, they do live kind of separate from the world. Um, but that's not at all how the Buddha set it up. At the same time, he says, you know, you should go, he recommends meditating or going on retreat 
on your own. And here we have these monks practicing in silence. So, so clearly it's not like one thing, you know, and which is typical of the Dharma of, of Buddhist teachings, that it's not just like, oh, just go off and be alone, or just live in community. It's like, be in community, but, you know, take time to go off and do your silent practice and your retreat practice. Uh, it's always that middle way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so what I will do is what I, I want you to just work with a partner and um, and maybe just like talk with uh, someone about. So we'll we'll just have uh, dyads um, to talk about. Um, so with the, this is how I have the reflection written. Reflect on the quality of relationships with people you live with and work with. You know, and we can just, doesn't have to be work, whatever. You know, the quality of your, you know, kind of circle of people that you're regularly in contact with. Could be friends. And then, could you bring more care to these relationships? So, just a simple sort of reflection on, on how much you're bringing loving kindness into those relationships and and living kindness. Okay, so just turn to uh, someone sitting close to you and, and we'll just spend a few minutes. And, and I'll, since we have the mindful speech going on downstairs, just try to pick up on that energy and be mindful. Well, you seem to be blending like milk and water, I must say. <laughs> so I'd love to hear any comments, uh, thoughts about that little exercise. Yeah. Um, you should use the microphone too, so thanks. We were, we were discussing like, you know, you, you do all this stuff for your family, the dishes or whatever, mm-hmm. but then like when you don't get that pat on the back, like I can handle it for a little bit, but then after like four days I'm like, Honey, like, yeah. you know, and, and then with the kids and like in my, the example, then I get like a comment, my, my little one was like, hey, dad, you're like Cinderella. And I was like, is that a compliment? Like, <laughs> no. But like, Sweeping not, the house, right, like, not feeling appreciated and it makes me not want to do it. But uh-huh. then not doing it, then I get all frustrated that the dishes, you know, and it's just like this continuous struggle. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like I do it because I love it and I want to. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I. I appreciate that. I, you know, these are the things we have to look at, right? I mean, the 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 idea of like doing these acts, you know, oh, privately, as it says in the sutta. You know, can I can I just take gratification, you know, in my own knowing that I've done a good thing? It's it's challenging because yeah, there is a certain joy that we take. And then, like you say, up to a point, it's like, okay, but now, come on, I need some, like, feedback, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hello, Kevin. One of the things Hi. that actually came out of the very first part of the, the reading, yeah. um, when you talk, when they were talking about, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and, and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Mm-hmm. 
And I read this, and I thought, well, that's, that's almost a clinical description of the symptoms of codependency. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, I'm in a couple of AA programs, including Al-Anon, yeah. and there's constantly this battle to not be a doormat, not yeah. be codependent. Yeah. So I struggle with this balance between, yes, I should be giving, I should be kind, but, but yeah. you know, sometimes maybe I've gone a little overboard on that. And how right. do you find that line? Right. Uh, uh, absolutely. And this is something I definitely address in my writing, that some of us need more encouragement to be generous and some of us need encouragement to be more kind to ourselves and to be less giving ourselves away. So very typical of of the these early Buddhist teachings is that it's just kind of completely over on that side. And perhaps because there was this assumption that people, of course, took care of themselves. Of course, people loved themselves, right? So in our culture, this definitely needs some balancing. We need the middle way on this. Uh, absolutely, we can't um, you know, always do what the other does. And, and as you say, it's, it's, uh, it becomes a dysfunctional uh, way of operating yeah, when, it's, when we don't take care of ourselves first. Yeah. Thank you for that observation. There was a, some other hands up. Yeah, I'll get you next. Friend. Thank you. What, what comes to mind for me around this question is consciousness makes all the difference. Yeah. If we're holding it in ourselves as an intentional practice, right. and the purpose of the practice is to heal self and generate love in the world, that's a really, really different thing yeah. from being driven by unconscious uh, triggers and yeah. that kind of clinging as you put it yeah yeah beautiful and and yeah you're pointing to first of all that the foundation of this needs to be mindfulness there needs to be awareness and that when it's not here's the rule do this <laughs> you know always do this this is the behaviors you're supposed to do it's moving through the world skillfully, responding in the moment to what needs to be t- taken care of. And that I am just like everyone else, have needs, and everyone else have needs, and what in this moment is being called upon. And, and that awareness, that's spiritual maturity. And, and one of the ways that spiritual teachings get misunderstood is when people take them as some fundamentalist rule or some, some just, uh, you know... Um, black and white kind of thing. This is what you're supposed to do. Never do that. Always take care of everybody else, you know, first or whatever that people see as the rule. And and that's where these uh, beautiful and subtle teachings get, uh, you know, turn into uh, something really unskillful. And, and, and that's the problem with superficiality with all spiritual teachings. I mean, I often see mindfulness. You know, when I teach introductory mindfulness, there's just this whole list of misunderstandings that people have about mindfulness. Oh, it's all about acceptance. Okay, so what am I supposed to do when something happens that I don't think is acceptable? Well, you're supposed to respond to it. You know, it's not, you're not, it's not supposed to be a doormat. Um, you know, non-judgment. Well, how? Wait a minute. Don't I have to make decisions? Yes, of course you do. You know that that uh, the the teachings are much more uh, layered and and uh, complex than than they get depicted. You know, on the you know that 
the cover of Time magazine or something, you know, just be like, and people, oh, I know what mindfulness is, and then they'll start telling you why it's a problem. Because, like the one that I've seen, it's like, oh, well, you know, with mindfulness, you stop thinking, so then you, you know, how can you do something creative? Because you're not thinking. And I'm like, no, you know, try it first before you start to say that, you know, and tell me when you get to that point where you're not thinking, please, I'll come and study with you. Because, you know, you know. So, uh, uh, Fran has his hand up here. I want to give him a chance. So, uh, a couple things came up in our conversation for me. I guess the first one was that quality of relationship varies depending on what triggers uh, get activated for me. And, you know, I think all of us are old enough to have past triggers <laughs> and uh, remaining issues from whatever kind of emotional environment we came from. And uh, so that's one thing that can uh, trigger emotions and unskillful behavior. And then trying to practice, you know, some of the principles that we're talking about in terms of how to address those and bring things back into uh, harmony. Uh, and the other thing that I think is being hinted at is a competition between needs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, that thing about wanting credit, that happened just last night. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I spent about four to five hours getting the house ready to have friends over, play music, uh, potluck dinner. And my wife, uh, she's not here. She may be like 30 <laughs> minutes <laughs> helping with that. Um, so feeling invisible, overlooked, unappreciated, all that stuff yeah. uh, has hooks to it. And uh, I like the idea of selflessness and sense of meditation, but I don't want to be selfless in the course of day-to-day relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're as dear to yourself as everyone is dear to themselves. And, yeah, and you know, a, a couple things. I mean, it... Some years ago, uh, you know, I've been married, we'll be celebrating, if you call it that, 20 years of marriage this summer. <laughs> we'll be at least marking it, uh, God willing, as they say. Uh, uh, and we've been together for 25 years, and, you know, uh, there are these stages that I've thought of, of, of like... Um, my view of what would make the relationship work better. The first stage is she needs to change. You go through that for some years and the therapy sessions and then the, and then it's kind of like, oh no wait, we really both need to change. We need to change as a couple. You know, if And my goal being I want to be happy and have a harmonious relationship. So if if she would change, then everything would be okay. No way. Okay, I. That's too. You know. No, we both. We need to change together. We need to. And then there's. You know. That's where you're in therapy together, and you're kind of working out how we what we need to do. And at a certain point, I realized, you know, if I change, then she changes. And it's like I can't control her, but it turns out that actually, <laughs> I can by controlling myself. You know, <laughs> by let and. And it is that thing, and it does kind of come back to like, if I, and it doesn't always feel satisfying, you know, like I'm not always getting 
the reward for it that I want to get, but actually I am getting the thing that I want, which is a harmonious home life. Because I can't make her, you know, say that or do that. You know, it's, but if my, if what I really want as a, like what, or maybe I should say, put it as needs, as opposed to what I want is like, yeah, I want it to just be the way I want it to be. But what I need to be able to like be in this relationship is a harmonious uh, life together. And that when I let go or when I do something, you know, and I take care of the things that I don't want to take care of and I don't get any reward, I still get that harmony. And then once in a while, I'm surprised, like, oh, thanks for doing that. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that is... I don't think I'm codependent. In fact, I think I'm way too selfish to be codependent. But <laughs> but that's kind of how it works for me. And, and I don't... I, I, I don't mean to put that out as like, oh, that's the way it is. But that's just like one example of how like I've figured something out. Uh, which I guess partly uh, what I'm, t- uh, I'm talking about to some extent is, you know, dukkha, <laughs> right? Like things are not satisfactory and marriages are not satisfactory. Relationships aren't satisfactory. I, I never get everything that I want out of it. I don't like to say never. I usually avoid using that term. But in this case... You know, I rarely get everything I want, uh, and rarely is everything just, but that's kind of, again, kind of spiritual maturity is seeing, oh, life isn't about, like, getting everything you want. <laughs> you know, that's not, not promised. And then, it, again, it, oh, then it, it also comes back to that equanimity. Like, oh, this is the way things are, and I can, if I can develop a balanced heart, that can you know ride with these ups and downs, then I can I can be okay. So, yeah. I just have one quick comment. I, it's yeah. interesting that the theme seems to be about bridging the polarity. You know whether it plays out with ourselves uh-huh. in the family life, the work yeah. life, whatever it is, but that we're really trying to create these bridges of this sort of innate polarity that mm. seems to just exist. So. Is it really about the dishes? Is it really about all right. of these things? Right. Is it really about something even beyond ourself? You know, beyond a childhood, beyond whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Just this divide that seems to be the human existence. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's very much what I think this is about. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's a real balance between the first these two categories you're talking about, you know, the self self meta and meta for others. Yeah. And what happens, I think, say for instance, I maybe have friends that that uh, volunteer and they go do volunteer. Eh, I don't want to be there at eight thirty in the morning. Then you get there, and you get into it. Yeah. And it just changes everything. You know? mm-hmm. And so that balance goes back and forth. So the the meta for others becomes actually starts becomes meta for self. Yeah. Now the other categories, like the like the difficult ones, that's where it gets really difficult for me. Yeah. But these first two are, you know, are balanced and play off each other real well. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So we had one over over here. Well, this kind of uh, connects to the marriage thing. <laughs> uh, our children. That's one thing that came up with both of us. Is we have adult children. 
that, um, you know, as parents, we want the best for our kids. And sometimes, especially at that age, they have to go and find their way. And um, that causes a lot of anxiety for me. And I just try and let it go. And it's easier now that she doesn't live at home. (laughs) But it was very tough when she was because I was seeing it. It was in my face all the time. And now it's not. And, um, you know, I really try and just trust you know, just trust that she's going to be okay and she's going to, because it's not mine, right? I can yeah. just control, you know, what's inside of me and try and make my life as, uh, without Duca as possible. So can you speak something on children? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it feels like you kind of you know, said it. Um, I, I, as you were talking, I, the, first of all, the thought that came up is, I'm not going to be around even. Just, you know, one of, the, one of the heartbreaks of parenthood, it's the one thing, my father was not somebody who told me a lot about his feelings, but uh, one thing he said to me was, I'm not afraid to die. I don't even remember wh- how old he was when he said this. I d- don't have a sense that he was even that old, but he probably was older than, I don't know. Anyway... He said, I'm not, I'm not afraid to die. I just want, would like to be around to see how everything works out for my sons. He had just had sons, five of us. And, um, you know, that stuck with me. There aren't many things that he said that stuck with me, but that one stuck with me. Uh, and, and as a parent, that's exactly... I mean, I couldn't care less about living another day of my life, actually. I mean, maybe that's sounds negative, but I mean, as a Buddhist, like part of my daily practice is to remind myself that I, I, one of my, on my meditation this morning, as I was reading my meditation, I was like, oh, what if I die on the way to the day long today? I I mean, you know, it's a reflection that the Buddha encourages, and unfortunately, I usually turn it into something morbid, like, oh God, they're not going to, everybody's going to be out there, they're going to be wondering where I am, and they're going to be calling my house, and I'm going to be dead on the road, and then there's my, but anyway, because I have a hard time controlling my mind, you know, I have like spiritual thoughts, and then they get sidetracked. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, and, but that's, it's also, like you said, it's a, that's how you know, like, they're not mine. I'm not, it's not my job, you know. And I, I, I don't know, I, you triggered some, I got triggered there, so I'm not sure if I, no, no, no. I, I, you know, I, I, uh, there was a moment in my daughter's high school life when she made this big decision and she managed it so well that a couple days later, I said to my wife, I don't feel like I have to worry about her anymore. She knows how to figure out her life. And that's, but, but you know, my parents probably never felt that about me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I was a year sober when my father died, so maybe by then he felt like, okay, he'll make it. But I was 35, 36 when he, di- 36 when he died. And so um, my daughter was like 16 when I had this thought, you know. So um, I don't know how many parents get to feel that. Uh, uh, um, it's, 
it's just, it's a really tricky relationship. It just is. It's the, and we will talk about it. It's one of the suttas we're going to look at today. So yeah, that's my, that's how I'll bail out of this question for now. <laughs> and maybe by then I'll gather my thoughts. Yes. love themselves yes and, that, and that's my impression that that still trips my mind a little bit like how would the things that we read be different if he thought that and maybe they wouldn't at all but it was somewhat reassuring that others too have their uh issues with self either hatred or self-love but it, but it was a, a, a an interesting stop of the moment uh like wow somebody really sees themselves as love for themselves first. Yeah. And so just that moment of appreciation. The other uh, was recognizing that in either the home or the work situation that um, one can find it easier. Uh, my takeaway was one can find it easier to do for others than yourself because it's easier sometimes to be in service for others than mm-hmm. yourself. Right. But therein lies the, the opportunity for spiritual or maturity to growth because you'll have more authenticity if you have more love for oneself either at home or at work. Yeah. The other thing about marriage that has come in handy, but I, I certainly struggle. sorry for all the single people here. Like, <laughs> why are we? Yeah, really. But there's the, plenty for a partner at work or not. When you get married, I, I learned early on from another teacher to take your partner's concerns as your own. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy to do, but it makes a difference. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Um, I was going to say something about what you started out talking about, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things that I think makes Buddhist teachings so resonate for us today is so much of it seems to be talking about our own experience, particularly things like the five hindrances or the causes of suffering, uh, as well as things like loving kindness and compassion. All these things really make sense uh, and, and they're, uh, they, um, we've, we can sort of feel that, wow, even though the Buddha lived all these years ago, people haven't changed fundamentally. Human consciousness hasn't changed. But in this one, a couple of areas, it's in this area at least, and there's one other area that we'll address later. Uh, It it looks like maybe some consciousness has changed. But then when we see what the Dalai Lama said about self hatred, how he didn't understand it, we start to think, oh, this isn't the way the Western mind. Self-hatred is not inherently a human quality in the same way that desire and aversion are, that, that this is actually much more culturally conditioned. Um, and, you know, I, I, I often refer to my, uh, the old uh, band leader, Lofty Amal, who's a Nigerian musician uh, that I played with years ago, and how he would get up on stage and we, the rest of us were Americans in the group, and, and he would introduce a song and say, this is a beautiful song that I wrote. 
and everybody in the band would kind of cringe, like, you're not supposed to like brag about yourself like that. And then when we re- met other Nigerian musicians, friends of his, they, would all, they were all the same way, and we realized, oh, this is just a cultural you know, habit, uh, the way that people talk about themselves in Nigerian culture, apparently, uh, or at least Nigerian musicians, you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so it's that, that same thing. It's like, oh, you know, what is, what is natural, what is like human, and what is um, cultural, what's conditioned? Uh, and that's a really important question for around many topics. I mean, a lot, a lot of political questions almost verge on this. You know, we think of what's right or wrong. You know, and and we kind and then we think, well, wh- how can those people believe that? You know, that's so obviously wrong. And it's, uh, you know, that uh, our conditioning and um, biases. Whew. Yeah. We'll get you in the back next. Hello. Um, I felt a lot in the way uh, Christianity and stuff took and oppressed us as a, as a you know, um, historically to, to keep us feeling guilty and to keep us doing, you know, and some people get a real spirituality out of it. I did not, and I felt the guilt. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the self-hate that sparked that, that original sin. You know, I was told I was born with original sin. So, um, and I, not putting down Christianity, but I think that a lot of us took that guilt on, and that became the self-hate. And that's the culture of, of you know, our society is so strongly that way. So um, I, too, heard that about the Dalai Lama saying that, my husband is Japanese, mm-hmm. and I would say to him, I tried to love myself. I go, do you love yourself? He goes, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I was like really? How? And I, you know, I, and that, I grasped for that. And um, so that's something I, I work on continuously, and uh, just, a, just a thought. Of yeah. Yeah. Well, the roots of, you know, Western self-hatred there, you, I'm sure there's a several PhD theses uh, in that topic. Um, if one way of approaching this a little bit is to say, it's not saying, do you like yourself? Mm. You know, like there might be things about yourself that you're like, oh, I wish I could be more like this, I wish I was more like that, and why do I do that? That's about y- your liking. But love is something else, right? It's, it's more of a... Uh, just uh, a unconditional. I mean, metta, loving kindness, is unconditional. The, the Buddha says it's like mo- the love a mother gives for a child. You know, you don't. A mother doesn't go, oh, this child's crying. It's like trade this one in, like this. You know, it, it, it's just love. It's not, and you might not even like your child. And sometimes people don't. You know, you get to a point where they're, it's like, oh. Um, um, I mean, many of us don't like our parents, you know, but I mean, I guess some people don't love their parents too anyway, don't we? Uh, <laughs> I dig myself into holes sometimes, but, uh, but you know, I, I just, I feel like I need to at least look into the holes, you know, and see if there's something in there. Um, but 
but I think that's, that's a place that we can work with, maybe to see what is the difference. It, it can, can loving be something that's not a, a, a judgment? <laughs> no. Liking something is a, a judgment. I like this, I don't like that. Loving, in this sense of, of metta, isn't a judgment. It's not based on, oh, this deserves to be loved. It's like a deer goes by. You know, does that deer like lo- deserve love or not deserve love? Well, why would you say that? You know, you would never think that. If you love, if you appreciate the earth, if you appreciate beings, you just kind of go, oh, there's a being that's out there trying to survive in the rain and the cold, and you know, may it be, may it be, you know healthy and warm and safe. Uh, just a natural thing. There's no judgment involved. I mean, it, let's get very more basic. The, the grass out there. You know, do you like the grass or not like the grass? I mean, if you love the earth, you just love it. You don't like go, well, I love some of the earth, but that hill over there, no, I don't like that one. No, you don't. So it's just that, that appreciation of the things that are manifesting, things that are, that exist, that arise. So it kind of goes back to what I was, that introductory meditation practice, just the, here's life. I'm sitting here, there's life. And, and you know, so just to appreciate life, and to lo- love lo- what is living. There in, in the back, yes. Hi, um, I like what you just said. And now it's like I, now I'm going back to um, what we were talking yeah. about before sure. about you know, the whole idea of doing for others before yourself because you automatically like yourself. And I feel like there's a gender thing with this. I feel like as a woman, being raised as a little girl, because. I would possibly have children. There was always this um, emphasis on taking care of other people. Yeah. I mean, it, it was—it's biological, but it was also very cultural. Culturally conditioned. Yeah, um, so when I think about, you know, so I feel so programmed to take care of other people before myself, and. And then I just find it ironic. Well, the Buddha's a man, <laughs> and the Dalai Lama's a man, yeah. and. Um, I feel like my husband is much better taking care of his needs first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Al-Anon was founded by the wives of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. You know, go to a CODA meeting, it's probably predominantly women. Right. You know, and you look at the staff here doing service at Spirit Rock, most of them are women. No, most of them, but a lot, a lot of them, uh, and and yeah, um, that is definitely uh, something we see. As I think you pointed out very well, that there's a sort of biological basis in it, and then it develops into this cultural conditioning, and and it's one of the things that needs balancing, you know. And and part of the balancing, yeah, is for the for genders to to recognize, oh, because as as I said, you know, I'm not, I don't tend to be codependent, and it's very, I see it very much like that, you know, that that it's very much kind of comes out of this male self centeredness. That's uh, 
condition. But I also want to thank you. I just um, when about the thing about in your house that I actually came to a realization that I don't have enough gratitude for what my husband does do. Uh, so the, thank the, you for that. Yeah, you know, my my wife discovered there was some story in the probably in the New York Times some years ago that was talking about how the best way to get your husband to do more of the things you want him to do is to praise him when he does the things you like. You know, so I notice she does that at times intentionally. I really appreciate that you went to the store and got that, even though, you know, and I, and, and I recognize too that I have to remind myself to be grateful for things that I kind of assume, oh, well, you know, that's what you do. Like, and, you know, that's down that road. Leads misery. Lisa Marie's got her hand up here. Thanks. Um, what's funny is that our our good friends here um, tried to save us from each other because we're partners. <laughs> hey, are you sure you want to do this exercise with each other? Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, but what I notice, um, what I notice is that. Um, First of all, I have this um, really dark self-criticism, and I always thought that it was fine as long as I just had that off by myself. It wasn't <laughs> going to harm anybody, right? And I'm really moved by um, by what you said about um, this this king and queen who mm. who said, "Well, you know, are you the most important?" I've realized over the years that. Um, that my deep self-criticism affects the people that I live with. Drastically. And I didn't know that until... That um, it's a a self-absorption before. And um, so I, on a regular basis, have to pull myself out of that. I have to make a So, and the other thing in sitting in front of this man, I have to realize that on a regular basis, responsibility for um, whatever it is that's challenging me that gets in the way of my flow of living. And if I don't have that courage, I'm. Yeah. What you've said today. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just to repeat that one line. One who loves him or herself should not harm another. And so we could have, you know, like the in the Dhammapada, if you're familiar with the Dhammapada, it'll, it'll go through a, sim- a similar kind of uh, kind of verses like this, and then it'll have the opposite. Like, and so we could easily write the opposite of this. You know, one who does not hold oneself dear, if uh, will harm another. Yeah. That's maybe you know a motivation. 
to take care of ourselves. So if you know, even if we if it's hard for us to take care of ourselves, <laughs> we can remember that taking care of ourselves is helping the people around us. Uh, and of course, they you know the cliche of the the uh, air mask coming down in a in the airplane. You know, always put it on yourself before you put it on the child is a good uh, metaphor and or example of that in in very real situation. Um, and it somehow, yeah, if if we're into this like scorecard or something, like, oh, you know, I have to take care of them more than me, or I have to take care of myself more than them, or it just, uh, it kind of loses the spirit of it, you know, it's really to connect with, with what's happening on that visceral level, on that felt level, and the the needs of ourselves and the needs of others, and you know, and what the what we also take out of the teaching from the Buddha is, where this idea of separation is an illusion in itself—that I am separate from you, that I'm this unique person, that uh, you know, and that you know, somehow there's all these uh, barriers between us that they they aren't really there. They're they're constructed in the mind. Yeah. For a moment, we touched on how Western influence uh, can affect our attitudes and the way we interact. We talked about religion for a second and the, the chasm between male and female. But I think Western culture, we haven't touched this yet, is, is the bombardment of um, of competition, um, the phoniness of commercialism, and the constant standards: Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? I think it could be best said with with uh, Eckhart Tolle or uh, Tara Brock. I'm always being measured up against these standards: Am I pretty enough? Am I tall enough? Am I doing good enough work? You know, um, all of this I think kind of falls under. Well, it could fall under the issue of cognitive dissonance and so much competition that one wants to kind of help identify themselves more with their core values. But it seems like core values in today's society are becoming more and more damned and more and more stressed. And frankly... I think it's better living alone and being a hermit than it is having to go out there every day. I mean, yeah, we are getting along here, and we're trying to identify with, with what is important and what is not. But, you know, we live in a crazy world that the Dalai Lama, the original Buddha people, right, had no idea. This is just so bullshit. Well, I, I don't... I, I, I I certainly agree that you know we live in a crazy world, but I think the Buddha was talking about the same thing. It just wasn't. It's exaggerated now, you know. I mean, the the Buddha talked about three poisons that you know pollute our world: greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and what you're talking about, I mean, because fundamentally what you're talking about is economics, because what promotes that, those kind of competitions of, is trying to sell people things, right? You need to, uh, you know, look like this, so we're going to sell you that product, and, 
and uh, you know your status is defined by what you're driving around in, and you know your job title is what you know defines you, and and so the. I mean, my daughter went through, you know, applying to college, and you know, she's unfortunately in college now. So, but that now is is very similar. It's a the college that you get into then defines you, and and you know, sort of your status. And if it's not a good enough school, or it's not a name brand school, and and this is one of the reasons why schools work so hard to have big sports teams, because the sports teams are what gets them publicity, and then people think, oh, that's a cool place, and that defines me. If I go to this school, then I'm like, uh, I'm, you know, a, uh, you know, a wildcat now, or I'm a bear, or I'm something, and that, you know, and that's this status, and so it's all about marketing, which is you know, about greed, hatred, and delusion, you know. It's greed to to have this status or to have these possessions or to ha- to be seen in this way. It's hatred of not looking good, of, of having feelings that I don't like. And it's delusion that greed and hatred are going to bring satisfaction and happiness. So it's been around forever. It's just that the Western world is really... You know, refined it and perfected it, you know, or gotten really good at it. You know. And it's, you know, it, it, is the, it is one of the fundamental flaws of capitalism. You know, but, uh, you know, Western democracy, I mean, it was Churchill, I think, who said, you know, democracy is the worst possible system except for all the others. So, you know, the problem with, you know, with economics and the problem with politics isn't, economic systems and political systems, it's that they are created by human beings who are driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is why, you know, the, the spiritual view of human, of human change is based in cultivating loving kindness and wisdom, compassion, awareness in our own hearts individually because, and, and this is one of the, you know, theories right <laughs> that that the buddhist view is that people have to change as individuals in order to change society the marxist view is and probably the capitalist view but certainly it seems like the marxist view is change society and that will change the individuals so that's an argument about the law of karma and when you start arguing about the law of karma you're going down one of the deep, deep rabbit holes, you know. Uh, but certainly it works both ways, yeah. I mean, if you change society, then the individuals within the society will change. But um, it's, hard, it's hard to really argue that ultimately that's how human consciousness is going to change. It's, at least it's not the, not, certainly not the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view is that we have to change individuals in order to change, in order for the society to evolve. And, you know, we have the bodhisattva vow that, you know, we're going to work to the liberation of all beings. Uh, And then we have reality, which is that, you know, human history is this give and take and, and, uh, you know, between these competing uh, views. Or computing, competing energies of love and hate, and greed and generosity. It's easy 
when we look at what we call the news, which, you know where the word news comes from? Right, northeast, west, south. It's not because it's new, you know, because when, when you hear that, you think it's about, this is what's new. Anyway, okay, sorry, so, completely irrelevant. I just think it's a fun fact. When you l look at the news, what you're looking at is the latest iteration of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's the greed, hatred, and delusion report. They, they don't do the report on love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. But it turns out that there's a lot of that going on. Not just in spiritual centers, you know, but every day, in every country, in, uh, you know, uh, most of what goes on in the world falls under the categories of love and all, all of that. And the reason the stuff that's reported is the news is because you don't report dog bit man, you report man bit dog, the unusual thing. And greed, hatred, and delusion in terms of the six, seven billion people on earth is actually less common than caring for your neighbors, I think. Uh, that's my optimistic view of the world. And, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're not screwed, you know. <laughs> Because unfortunately, the people who are into hatred have developed ways to blow everything up. So, uh, you had your hand up? So, and this will be the last thing before we'll start to move towards lunch. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, uh, sitting here trying to sort of unpack multiple layers of. Like, That's why I'm writing a book, so you'll self, be able to just sit Self hatred, with right? <laughs> um, I mean, the first layer that brought me here was like that I was. You know, mis I misled someone that I'm in a close relationship with, and I think that comes out of like um, uncertainty about what I want in that relationship. And then that, so then I was like, okay, what's and like from there, it's like, why am I uncertain? I think one factor is that she has this disease, and it's changing the way she looks. And like, if I had that disease, I think I would completely hate myself, because I already do hate myself, but I don't even have the disease, right? But if I had this disease, I think I would just feel completely worthless. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ooh, like, why can't I, you know, is it... Is it that I hate myself so I can't look past her disease or is it that I owe it to myself to be with someone who looks a certain way, you know, mm -hmm. like, I, I, I don't really, you know, and what do I even want? Like, I, I'm just struggling with what is my own self-hatred versus what is honoring my own desire, kind mm -hmm. of. Thank you. You're not asking me a question, I hope. <laughs> that was a question. I think, you know, you're, as we often say in AA, you're in the right place, you know. Because that's a really powerful question. It's a really, really understandable conflict. Um, and, uh, and there isn't an answer for it that I can give you from up here. That would be, you know, it wouldn't help you, you know. Um, but it's just the fact that you're looking at it is, you know, that's shows your own integrity, you know, that you're 
you're engaging a really challenging question and and trying to sort it out. So, um, I think it's something that I've been sort of I haven't really maybe even fully articulated mm-hmm. to her, like, yeah. and even to myself. Like it's sort of come to me in the last day or two. Yeah. You know how? I mean, do you do you think I don't want to? Like, I think I'm afraid of damaging her psychologically like if i had this thing and someone said i can't love you because of this like i I don't want to destroy her right but i don't want to but i also want to be honest with her well so the we can talk about the buddhist instructions on right speech the three main elements are that you you speak the truth in a timely manner and only when it's useful, you know, when it's when it has some there's some benefit that will come out of it. And so when uh, you know when we tell someone, you know, that something that's true but that isn't really necessary for them to hear, then we're not really practicing right speech. And and so. It's then it's spoken out of my own out of my own self selfishness. I I just need to tell you this. It's like, why do I need to tell you this? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's so. If if that's something that needs to be said, you you, know, you need to really reflect on. I mean, if if it's if it's true and it's the and it's the defining thing that's like, yeah, I've realized that I just can't, you know, be in this relationship and this is why, then maybe that, maybe it is necessary to be, to be said. I, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it reminds, I wish I had the, I think Joseph Goldstein has that poem in, in uh, The Experience of Insight. There's this great poem about about aging and imp- impermanence of the way we look, and and unfortunately, it's kind of a sexist because it's talking about a woman, and of course, women's looks are much more uh, scrutinized uh, than men's, you know. Um, but it's about it's something about the this how beautiful this young woman is, but in you know twenty years. She'll look like a dried-up prune or something really insulting, you know. Uh, but it, we we all, uh, you know, no matter what, <laughs> it's nice to be young and attractive, but uh, it's impermanent, and uh, and naturally we're drawn to people that we feel um, sexual attraction to. Um, that's part of any intimate relationship. Or, Presumably, but um, doesn't last very long. So, um, not not the basis for something, for sure. And you know, easy from easy for me to say from here. Relatively easy, anyway. Okay. Well, um, I thought I'd like to do a little. Uh, a short practice, just like a five-minute practice before we have lunch, and then talk about uh, the 
I hope nobody was planning on going home tonight because we have a lot more to cover today. So if you brought your sleeping bag, we'll be uh, only covered once one sutta. <laughs> no, I think. So just settling into your body, closing your eyes. Connecting with the breath. And connecting with how you're feeling right now. It's been pretty pretty rich but pretty emotional this morning. A lot's coming up. So this is a practice that I use when I'm working with some negative thinking or difficult feelings. Very simple practice. Practice of self-compassion. As you breathe, into the heart, saying to yourself, held in the arms of love, held in the arms of love. Sense what it means to be held in love the comfort and safety of being protected. Perhaps bringing to mind a memory of being held, maybe as a child or or as an adult. Breathing held in the arms of love. Held in the arms of love. If there is some icon of compassion that resonates for you, like the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, or any image, bring that to mind. Feel the protection of that being or that energy of compassion. held in the arms of love.
let yourself feel your own vulnerability, your own frailty. And feel yourself held in the arms of love. Right, so um, the other suttas we're going to look at this afternoon include the simile of the saw, which is looking at ill will, non-ill will, is the, is the theme of it. Very interesting, uh, complicated uh, sutta. And then one that's called Born from Those Who Are Dear, that looks at how clinging to, uh, kind of wanting to control those uh, we love causes suffering, and then we'll go through the metta sutta at the end of the day. Um, so we'll we'll have lunch. If you didn't bring lunch, uh, there's a wonderful deli across in Woodacre. You just go down to the back town to Sir Francis Drake and turn right, and then take the first left and left. There's signs for it, so it's actually like if you went straight as the crow flies from here, you'd probably get there. Uh, um, so uh, it's 12.35, so I'd like to start up no later than one thirty. So depending if, if everybody's like back, we'll start a little earlier, but uh, um, we'll give basically that amount of time. And I'm going to be around, I'm just, so if people want to check in with me or chat, I'll be here. Oh, and yeah, let's still try to, if, if they come out of the, of the room downstairs, then maybe we can... Not be silent, but just be aware of not interrupting the group downstairs. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.